going to do something a little different today. Uh, I, I'm going to embarrass some of you. Assu- assuming, assuming you are honest, that is. We'll see who the liars among us are. It's going to become clear in just, just a moment. How many of you, I want you to raise your hand, how many of you did not read in preparation for worship this week? Yeah, yeah. I, I can't blame you. I mean, you see the worship guide come out and, and you look and you see that perennial Christmas text, uh, Matthew 1, uh, 1 through 17, and, and you sit down and you open your Bible and you read that heading, the genealogy of Jesus. And you yawn, ah, and you close your Bible, and you move on with your day. And I get it, I, I can't, can't blame you completely. Right? Genealogies, at the end of the day, they're just lists of names. Boring, right? Wrong! They are full of wonderful information. And Matthew's genealogy is given to us at the front end of his gospel to establish Jesus' pedigree. Matthew is declaring Jesus is the forever Davidic king who brings the blessing of Abraham to all the nations. And here's his resume. This is what qualifies him for the position. It's really an extraordinary thing. And we're going to take it apart in a second, but here in the introduction, I'm going to going to give you just a quick word of application. Read genealogies. Uh, What I try to do is I'll pick out some names that I know, some names that I don't know, uh, and then if I know where that is in the Bible, stories of those people, I'll go and read them. Or, you know, you could just Google, right? You know, where did, uh, you know, King uh, Uzziah, you know, learn about his life a little bit. And what will happen is you'll get some context and some background about these people uh, that the genealogy features, It'll help you appreciate what's, what's being established. And then step two is, uh, why, why is this here? This is a good question to ask about any uh, portion of Scripture. Say, why did the author include it at this point in time? What point is the author trying to make? And so, so this week, uh, maybe when you read through the genealogy again and try to get to the end of chapter one, since we'll finish up chapter one next week, Just try asking some of these questions of the text and and exploring some of the characters in Jesus' family tree. Uh, It will bless you. As one commentator said, uh, if you do a little digging, uh, you will find that there is gold in these hills. All right, with that, we come to these first 17 verses of Matthew's Gospel, uh, which we're going to walk through at the the front end of next year and, and throughout 2022 and the main idea is this, Jesus is the promised son of David whose kingdom is forever. And Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham who blesses all the nations. If you want that to be a little bit more portable for you, you just say Jesus is king and savior of all nations. Jesus is king and savior of all nations. And in response to that truth, we want to worship Jesus, our king. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll begin working through the text together. Father, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation of God the Son, who took on flesh, a second nature to himself. 
who is named Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. Lord, as we come to Matthew's biography of our Lord, we, we pray that you would help us to, to see Jesus, to see more than we are looking for, to see you, to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. We pray that as we turn to the genealogy this morning, we are awed at how you have pulled all the threads of history together to bring yourself glory and to accomplish your good and true purposes. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for who you are, for having mercy on us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I do think the first thing we need to do before we get to verse 1 is to try and put on some first century Jewish skin, right? We want to, to climb back into the first century as it were and put ourselves in their shoes and try to imagine what, what it might be like to hear these opening verses. There has not been a word from God in 400 years that came through the prophet Malachi. The Hebrew Old Testament orders the books differently than us, and so it closes with 2 Chronicles. And what 2 Chronicles does is it outlines the history of the people of Israel, from Adam all the way down to the post-exilic age. And it leaves the reader wondering, will God keep His promises? Will there be a Davidic king who comes and defeats our enemies? restores us. And so it's, it's in, in this context that the people are waiting. Generations of families waiting to see if God will keep His Word. It's a little bit hard for us to relate, I think. We don't wait on much of anything these days. I, I certainly don't, right? I don't even wait on Christmas anymore, right? I go, yeah, there's something I want, Amazon, at my door. You know, I, don't e I don't even wait to give Christmas presents. Chelsea will tell you this. Uh, I have Christmas in uh, April and July and September. I, I go, oh, I have this idea of a gift for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it, and I'm going to give it to you. I'm not going to wait. She's different. She like, starts Christmas shopping in like, January and then hides it somewhere in the house and then brings it back around and gets frustrated. I'm like, I already bought that for myself a long time ago. We're, we don't come from a culture that is used to waiting very long on anything. In fact, we view waiting as something to be avoided. Right? This is why we, no one loves to go to the DMV or to call an insurance company. I think it's important to recognize that God often accomplishes something in us and in His people when He causes us to wait. He teaches us that even when it might not seem like it, He is at work. That even though His promises might sometimes be long delayed, He's at work in the delay, and His promises are never forgotten. This is a long wait. I mean, I certainly have even lost hope in the grocery store waiting to check out. Imagine 400 years. Could one blame someone for 
losing hope as they waited, looking for a king and checking their calendar and maybe saying, I don't think God keeps his promises anymore. He's, he's quiet. Where is he? I certainly couldn't blame Jewish folks for, for thinking that way in the first century, for worrying that God might be unfaithful. And maybe, maybe you are at a place this morning in your life where you are hoping for God to accomplish something in your life, or you're looking to a promise of the Scripture and you're, you're wondering, why am I not experiencing this right now? Why am I waiting? And I want to encourage you, as I think the Jewish people probably encourage themselves, to remember God's past faithfulness and to look at that as a guarantee of his future faithfulness. I have a, a practice I, I started some time ago where uh, in the back of my devotional journal, I'll just have a page laid out and it's just prayers answered or things, ways that God has kept his promises to me and I'll just list them out to try and help myself remember. And I found that even though I do that, I'm still, I'm still so forgetful of how good God has been to me. He, he met this need back then, and then here I am now, and I act like He's not going to meet my next need. God is, is always faithful, and I think to battle against our forgetfulness and our worry in our waiting, we ought to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness to us. His faithfulness throughout the Scriptures. His faithfulness throughout our lives. His faithfulness here, even in our own church, since 1924, to preserve a people for Himself here in this place in Nelson County. Friends, God is faithful. He always works on His calendar rather than ours. And so let us not worry in the wait, but have hearts that are full of courage and steadfastness, hearts that are full of confidence that God is working in the wait. Help us. We need to wait full of faith. God's promises, though sometimes long delayed, are never forgotten. And so the, the Jews have been long waiting for God to fulfill His promise. And Matthew opens his book with an announcement. Uh, the king has come. It's a little bit like if you've ever been to a wedding reception and everybody gathers around and they, they wait for the bride and groom to be announced, right? The, the music turns up, the, the doors are flung open, and whoever's running the thing says, I now present to you, Mr. and Mrs., Matthew's doing that a little bit. He says, I now present to you the promised forever Davidic king who brings blessing to the nations. That's what he's getting at in verse 1. Look with me there. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There, there are three things in this first verse that actually get filled out throughout Matthew's gospel. And the first one is, is subtle, but I'm going to give it to you first. The first two words of the book are actually 
uh, book and uh, Genesis. Right? In Greek, it's uh, biblios, genesios. And I think what Matthew is doing is intentionally helping us to see that this is a new beginning. Right? The Greek title of the book of Genesis in the Septuagint goes by the same title that Matthew puts on this genealogy. He's drawing our attention to the fact that in this messianic king, God is doing something new. Just as he once created the world from nothing and put Adam in the garden, so too. His messianic king, the the second Adam, is beginning something new. But, where Adam failed in the garden, the new Adam will succeed. Indeed, Jesus will resist temptation, fulfill his role as king, and crush the head of the serpent rather than indulging him. Jesus, I think we are to see, is the new Adam who brings to the world a new beginning. He starts in his life and ministry a new creation. In Christ, the the end of times is breaking out into our times. That's featured even in his resurrection state now. A state to which we are all if we are in Christ, destined. Matthew wants us to know that God is doing something new. That there is a new Adam on the scene. The next thing we see is this, is the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Now Christ, I know, I know people think Christ is a last name. It's, it's not a last name. Right? You didn't go over to, uh, Joseph and Mary, Christ's house, and and hang out with our kids, uh, Bob, Jim, James, Christ. And, you know, there's the welcome mat, welcome to the Christs. No, no, no. Christ is a title. It could simply be translated Messiah. It, It points to the fact that Matthew is identifying Jesus as a specifically anointed one, as God's chosen one as the son of David. Remember, there's a promise in 2 Samuel 7 to David that God will give a king to his people who will reign forever and ever. And so Matthew is making the the breathtaking claim that Jesus is that forever king. We might ask ourselves, really, Matthew? What qualifies Jesus to be the forever Davidic king. And Matthew answers us by providing to us Jesus' resume in verses 2 through 17. Which we'll read now, and I'm going to try to not stumble over the names. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, 
And Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Why the genealogy? Why all these names? Well, Matthew is tracing Jesus' royal descent to present to us Jesus' qualifications for being the Davidic king. He comes from the right family. He comes from the right line. His resume qualifies him. You know, it is interesting that we look at your resume. Well, we, we commend ourselves for positions today. We show ourselves qualified by listing out our degrees and our work experience, things we've done, presenting ourselves in the, in the best possible light. Well, it worked a little differently in the ancient world. Although there are some similarities, right? If you've ever heard the phrase, it's not what you know, it's who you know. See, in the biblical world, it, it wasn't what you know necessarily that made you qualified for something who you were connected to as a family member. People looked to genealogies as a sort of resume to get a, a feel for who you are and what your status was in society. And similar to today, genealogies were often tweaked a little bit, just like you might tinker with your resume. You know, you leave off your stint as a uh, Chick-fil-A cow in college, don't necessarily include that time as a, as a sign flipper. Now, when, I, when I was coming here, I didn't inform anyone that I had worked at a cemetery in high school. Right? It wasn't really relevant. Likewise, Matthew actually organizes Jesus' genealogy to make a theological point. He actually leaves a lot of people out intentionally. His omissions are obvious. And they serve a theological purpose. So we need to recognize that this, this genealogy, this resume of Jesus is about theological significance, not chronological precision. See, Matthew is making a point about who Jesus is. It is interesting. I, I'm not sold one way or another on this, but you'll notice uh, in verse, I'm going to mess it up, in verse 7, there it is, that there's the name Asaph. And if you were a good Jew, uh, you knew the names of your kings, sort of like Americans might know the names of their presidents, right? So you knew who the 10th, like, like you might know who the 10th president of the United States is, John Tyler, y'all are looking, 
or at least be able to Google it, right, to check it, they wouldn't know who their kings were. They didn't have Google, but they had, they had the Old Testament. And notice Matthew changes the name here to Asaph. Now, some, some commentators argue that Matthew's just working uh, with a variant spelling of Asa's name, Asa was a king, that he picked up from Chronicles. There's the same thing down in verse, wherever Amos shows up, um, verse 9, I believe, 10, verse 10, right? Manasseh, the father of Amos. Uh, the, the actual king there is Ammon, Amnon. So the question comes, we decide, Matthew's either working from a manuscript that just has a variant spelling of the names, that happens, people spell their names three, four different ways in the Old Testament, that's normal, or he's done this intentionally. And again, I'm not really sold on either position, uh, but I thought I'd share it with you. If he's doing it intentionally, he's doing it to bolster his theological point. Asaph, if you read through the Psalter, you'll see a psalm of Asaph. And his name was connected to the wisdom literature in the Old Covenant. And then if you look at the name Amos, we all know the prophet Amos is connected to the prophets. And so the argument goes, Matthew's theological point here is not only is Jesus the son of David, the, the true and better David, the, the forever king, not only is Jesus the, the son of Abraham who brings blessings to the Gentiles, Jesus is also the fulfillment of the wisdom literature and he is the fulfillment of the prophets. He is prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the culmination of of all the promises of God. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That's one of the really interesting things about this genealogy. I don't know if that persuades you one way or another. I think it's neat, cool possibility. But, but what Matthew really aims to do, he makes explicit in verse 17. He says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon... 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, again, he's tinkered with this. It wasn't exactly 14 generations from one to the other, right? There are, there are generations missing here in his genealogy. But he's telling us, I've left those names out to arrive at these 14, 14, 13, slash 14, approximately 14 generations between each of these events. And the events, you can see, correspond roughly to Israel's history. So from Abraham to David was the time of the patriarchs. From the time of David to the exile was the time of the kings. And from the exile to their current time was a time of captivity to enemies. Their whole history is, is traced out. And so that makes sense, three, three divisions. But then we come to the question, but why this number 14? What's special about 14? And let me tell you, there are a million different interpretations of this. But this is, I'm going to give you what I think is the convincing and the best one. Here it is. The number 14 corresponds to the numeric value of David's name. Stay with me now. Uh, ancient people didn't have YouTube or the internet, and so they came up with, with number games and creative things to do. And so one of the things Jewish folks love, it's called, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, uh, geometria, something like that. And, and what would happen, and, and you can see this too, is that the number, uh, I'm sorry, the letters of a person's name would correspond to a number, would have a numeric value, kind of like a code. 
So in English, the letter A would have the value of, of 1. The letter B would have the value of 2, so on and so forth. So in the Hebrew alphabet, uh, David's name has the letters, sorry, David's name in Hebrew would just be spelled DVD, okay? Dalit Vav Dalit. Because Hebrew didn't have vowel pointers, they, knew, they, they worked all that out, so the, the vowels didn't actually get written in. So it would just be Dalit Vav Dalit is his name. And so Dalit is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This is getting, your eyes are glazing over, right? Stay with me. Uh, Dalit is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Vav is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so, so let's do the math with me, right? Right, right? Uh, Dalit, four, plus Vav, six, plus Dalit, which is four, is 14. And so you see what Matthew is, is doing here is he's, he's helping us to recognize Jesus is qualified to be the forever Davidic king. He has been born in the fullness of time in the right royal line to fill this role. You also notice that, do you know what the 14th name on this genealogy is? David. Interestingly, there's a whole bunch of kings, but the only person that's identified as a king is David. And so what Matthew is doing is he's saying, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. He's the forever king. He's the promised one. He's come at the right time, in the right place, with the right pedigree. It's as if he's got uh, flashing lights and, and fireworks or that little alarm emoji on your phone that tries to get your attention. And he is saying, king, king, king. Jesus is the king. The one you have waited for for so long. He's come. Jesus is the promised son of David. But that's not all. Matthew argues that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the one who will bring blessing to all the nations. You guys remember God's promise to Abraham, right? I will give you descendants like the stars. Through you, all the nations will be blessed promise that's reiterated throughout Genesis. At one point in Genesis 22, I'll read it to you. God speaking, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all nations, all peoples, all Gentiles of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So how is it that Jesus will bring the blessing of Abraham to the world? How does this make sense? Is this promise for us Gentiles? Well, Paul explains that God's promises to Abraham find their fulfillment in Christ. He lays it out for us in Galatians. Galatians 3, verse 16. It says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. See, Paul is saying the true offspring of Abraham is Jesus Christ. And those who are united to Christ by faith enjoy the promise made to Abraham. He elaborates a little earlier on in Galatians 3, in verse 6, he says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness, then understand 
that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. How are all the nations blessed through Abraham? By faith in Christ. The seed of Abraham that brings blessing to Jew and Gentile and to all kinds of people is Jesus. Paul's arguing that righteousness is a consequence of faith, not biological descent. He's arguing that the distinguishing feature of Abraham's family is faith in Christ, faith in the promises of God. So the promises made to Abraham become a reality to us only in Christ Jesus. You go, well, how exactly, what does it mean to be blessed through Christ Jesus? What does it mean to enjoy the blessing of God? We'll get to that question in a second. But even before that, who and how do we enjoy this blessing? We've said the faithful, but those who believe in Jesus, but, but who else? This brings us to my favorite, favorite portion of the, the genealogy, which is all the weird stuff that's in here. There's a few unusual features. Matthew includes a, a whole lot of wicked kings, but perhaps the portion that sticks out like a, a sore thumb is Matthew's inclusion of women. Women were not included in genealogies in the first century. It would be exceptional for even one to show up. You know, it's not something positive you put on your resume, apparently. But we see in Matthew's genealogy, there are four women. And when we look at these four women, we go, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Matthew, did you, did you mess up? Because if you were going to include women, we would expect you to include those matriarchs of Israel. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. But instead, we've got Canaanites, Moabites, prostitutes, some scandalous women. Matthew, what are you doing? The question, why? Why are these scandalous women here? I mean, Tamar, you know, we see, see her in verse 3. Remember in Genesis 38, she is obliged to act in faith and play the part of a hooker in order to get Judah to fulfill his promise to her. And then she has twins. She's a great grandmother of Jesus. And Rahab is a prostitute in Jericho, and she hid the Israelite spies from the enemy. Eventually was joined to Israel. Ruth wasn't a prostitute, but she was a Moabite, which isn't a ton better. Her husband dies, and she remember famously, she's like, I'm going to cling to you, Naomi. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And then they go back, and they find this kingsman redeemer, Boaz, and in the dark of night, when he's you know, on the threshing floor, sleeping outside, she has this plan where she goes to him in the middle of the night and, and lays next to him. Right? Not exactly above reproach. Well, scandalous activity. Well, then we come to Bathsheba, who Matthew even blushes 
to name. Remember, she's called the wife of Uriah. And Uriah, in the Old Testament, you probably even thought of it, is Uriah the Hittite. Bathsheba was considered a Hittite by way of marriage. And regardless of her willingness or unwillingness to engage in adultery with David, I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us about her motives, regardless of her motives, that particular event would place Bathsheba squarely in the scandalous category. Canaanites, Moabites, prostitutes. Not exactly women above reproach, but, but no Sarah, no Rebecca, Rachel, or Leah. What is Matthew doing? We also see he's made some odd decisions as it relates to kings. He hasn't just included scandalous women, but some of the most evil men known to Israel's history. Remember, Ahaz ignored Isaiah's counsel, brought Judah under the authority of the Assyrians, and sacrificed children in sacred fires. Manasseh is described as perhaps the most wicked king in the history of Judah. He put up false worship sites, practiced sorcery, and participated in child sacrifice. Maybe my favorite is, is Joram. Not a ton of informa- I'm not going to give you a ton of information on him. I just love in 2 Chronicles 12.20, we have this comment. He died to no one's regret. What a great thing to have on your tombstone. Died to no one's regret. I'm going to start the next funeral I do that way. But even, even the good King David is identified as a sinner in this list. See, Matthew brings our attention to the fact that David took Uriah's wife and reminds us immediately that David stole someone else's wife, got her pregnant, then tried to bring him home, tried to get Uriah drunk and send him home to Bathsheba so that he would think the kid was his. Then when that didn't work because Uriah was righteous, he organized the military to have Uriah killed by the enemy. So what, what's, what's the deal? Why include these scandalous women and evil men in Jesus' job resume? I mean, if we're dropping names, as Matthew has done, why not drop out some of these? Why purposefully include women who wouldn't normally be included? I'm going to give you three reasons. The first, two will be very, or the first and third will be very short, and the second will be a little longer. First reason, why include them? One, to make clear Jesus is the king. Not just of Israel, but of all nations. The inclusion of the scandalous Gentile women in Jesus' family tree demonstrates God's inclusion of the Gentiles, that's all nations, in his redemptive plan. God has always and forever planned to save to himself a global people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. It was never only about biological Israel. God saves all kinds of sinners from all kinds of backgrounds. Secondly, I think Matthew includes these scandalous women and these evil men to show that Jesus is born to save his people from their sins. Jesus' family tree is ultimately made up of all who will repent of their sins and trust in him. You see, 
in verse 21 of this first chapter, she, that's Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And you go, well, who, who are Jesus' people? Sinners who come to receive mercy. God has mercy and forgiveness for all kinds of sinners. He, he has mercy for uh, those who had to play the part of hooker like Tamar. He has mercy for prostitutes like Rahab. He has mercy for the Ruths of the world. He has mercy for those who have been taken advantage of sexually like Bathsheba. He has mercy for those who abuse their power and authority like David. He has mercy for murderers. He has mercy for Manassas. He has mercy for Sherry and for David and for me and for anyone who will come and put their faith in Him. God forgives all kinds of sinners through Jesus Christ our Lord. None of us is too far gone that we can outrun the saving arm of Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He was named Jesus because He saves His people from our sins. Christmas is not good news without the crucifixion and the resurrection. Christmas does not bring joy to the world indiscriminately. It only brings joy to the people of God. To those who have faith in the forever King who brings blessing to the nations. Friends, Christmas is an announcement that you cannot make yourself right with God. That the only thing that can make you right with God is if the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, takes on flesh and comes and lives the life you should have lived, dies the death you should have died, and raises from the dead. That's what it takes to save you from the wrath of God that you have earned with your unbelief, with your sin, with your rejecting God's Word. Our sins, when we have remade God in our own image, when we edit His Word so that we can live life however we want, that's sin. And it earns death stretched out across eternity. Physical death is a preview of eternal death in hell. And the only way to be saved by that was for God to become a man. For the light of the world to be hidden in the womb of a virgin. To die a bloody death on a cross. To raise out of a cold grave. God did that. Christianity, it's not about being a really good person and saving yourself. It's about trusting the God who wrote himself into history so that he might save us. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, I want to encourage you to believe in the King who has come. Worship the King of Christmas. You cannot outsin God's grace. The blood of Christ can cleanse you. Repent, be baptized, follow Jesus. Put your faith in Him. Worship the King. All ye faithful, 
joyful and triumphant church, worship King Jesus for what He has done for you. We should be a joyful and thankful and worshipful people. We have been saved from eternal death, rescued in Christ. This this is a blessing beyond measure. We ought to be a people who rejoice. So why include the scandalous women and the evil men to make clear that God's people are made up of every tongue, tribe, and nation to show that Jesus saves all kinds of sinners? If you were doing that portable thing earlier from our main idea, Jesus is the King and Savior of all nations. Jesus is the King and Savior of all nations. And then thirdly, and lastly, I think, the reason, and this is particular to the scandalous women, is to demonstrate God's sovereignty over history. Because God, in His kind providence, uses sinful people to accomplish His good plan. This is really neat. I didn't see it until um, this time round in Matthew's Gospel. But you'll notice, you know, Tamar's background isn't great. She has an irregular conception. Rahab's background is irregular. I'm being kind here. Bruner's word. Ruth ends up engaged to Boaz. It's a little irregular. Bathsheba, she was, you know, she's with David, becomes the mother of Solomon in a little irregular way. It's a little scandalous. And then you'll notice a fifth name that I didn't mention. Down in verse 16, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Mary will fit right next to these scandalous women that God used to accomplish his good purposes, won't she? Because when people see Mary pregnant before she's married, they're going to place her squarely in the scandalous category. And so we see kind of two things. The genealogy serves to defend Mary's honor on one hand. And then on the other hand, it serves to demonstrate God's ability to work through sinful men and women to bring about His will. And friends, that's good news for us as a church. God can work through us to bring about His good purposes. And I think particularly at this time of year, this means telling other people about Jesus. Inviting them to church. Engaging in spiritual conversations. That's good to do all year round, but again, this time of year gives us an easy opportunity to open up conversations about Jesus Christ our Lord. So let us be encouraged that God is sovereign. And that His promises, though sometimes are very long in their delay, are never forgotten and are always kept, just as we are kept in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is good and true and profitable. We ask that You would shape us by it, that You would help us to see the glory of Christ in it. Pray that Your Spirit would help us to apply it to our lives. We thank You that because of Jesus, sinners like us can call You Father. Thank You for Your mercy and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.